This is Kelly Carlin, and welcome to Waking from the American Dream. People everywhere, they could elevate above all fear. In a perfect heart, there'd be perfect love. I'm still looking for it in someone. Just trying to find my way through this In a perfect world In a perfect world In a perfect world In a perfect world This ain't bringing me down Get it off my shoulder Living like I told you This ain't bringing me down Get it off my shoulder Living like I told ya Oh, 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 everyone. Welcome. Yes, it's our third podcast this year. Uh, As you know, uh, that would be considered a baby Jesus miracle right there. (laughs) Yep, me and the baby Jesus got together and decided we need to do more podcasts. And so here we are again. Um, I am taping this today on uh, President's Day. They call it. They call it President's Day because, well, you see, when I was growing up, there was Lincoln's birthday and there was Washington's birthday. And they were two different Mondays in February, and we got them both off from school. Well, 
that wasn't very good. People did not like that. People who want to indoctrinate the children were like, what, two days off this year? For them to go out and frolic in the woods and play tag and bounce balls and skin their knees? No, we need them in the classroom. Let's just consolidate consolidate those little birthdays and put them into President's Day, which is meaningless. It's a meaningless word. Who cares about President's Day? Because we're not, it's not about all presidents. I mean, if it really was, then it might be interesting. It's a slippery slope. We'd have 45 days we off. We'd have 45 days off. We're celebrating all the birthdays. Yeah. And why not Jefferson? Jefferson was a really hell of a guy. He should be uh, have his birthday. And the conservatives, God knows, they would love Reagan's birthday, I'm sure, to be a holiday. So, yeah. So today is President's Day, a meaningless day, which uh, clearly because Logan and I are sitting here working. So, you know, we're not taking the day off. We're not um, lollygagging on the beach somewhere, meditating on the importance of the executive branch of the government. Although the world is certainly focusing on the executive branch of the government in some ways because people are either really happy today or really pissed off today because Obama gets to pick another Supreme Court justice. Ah, justice. That's the word in there that's really important. Yes, your friend and mine, Antonin Scalia, is dead. And, you know, he was a good Catholic. He was a man who believed in God. So if you're a person who believes in God, then you've got to believe that it is God's will that he died. On Obama's watch. On Obama's watch. It's just that simple, people. So, uh, yeah. Oh, the hubbub out there. It's so fun. Uh, McConnell saying the will of the people need to be honored and we need to wait till the next president I'm sorry, but didn't the will of the people elect this president? And what president is going to let a whole year go by without picking a nominee? It's it's pretty much the epitome of politics today. It's insane and ridiculous, and there's no rational thought involved. Where are the grown-ups? Well, the grown-ups are with Mr. Obama, of course, because he's quite the grown-up. You know, that's that's the bottom line of who he is. He's definitely a grown-up. So, um, but someone had a funny gif online yesterday I saw after uh, he made the announcement, or he, you know, he talked about Scalia, and, you know, he looked mournful, and you know, people have a lot of respect for Scalia. Very intelligent man. And I've read some accounts of, you know, people that he's talked to and things, and, you know, he was he was a good jouster of the intellect. And so Obama went out there and honored him, and then he walks off. And then someone put at the end of this gif, Obama kicking the door, you know, like, fuck you, people. (laughs) It's just like the greatest, like kicking the door open, like, you know, fuck you. I'm in charge, motherfuckers. Uh, Just a great, a great gif. I love the gifs. Uh, So, yeah, so that's got um, the world, the free world, uh, all a Twitter, of course. And... um, But it's been a few weeks since I've been here. Uh, We had a Super Bowl, which was interesting. And hey, I was, you know, it's funny. I grew up not really caring about football. My dad was a Raiders fan. And and you kind of, I don't know, inherit these kind of things. My dad would take me to Raiders games when they were here in L.A. And 
and dad would yell at the, uh, oh, he would just, yeah, he just, he, he, dad was fun in public anyway. Um, <laughs> and, um, he'd always end up down. We, we had like 50 yard line tickets because, you know, dad could afford those and that, and he and his brother, Pat would go a lot and they both loved Raiders, but they would always end up in the end zone with all the stoners and all the partiers because they'd be smoking weed down there with them. Always like just attracted right to their people, the working class, normal people of America. I love it. So I inherited being a Raider fan, been a Raider fan for years, been bro- heartbroken by the Raiders for years, and which also means that I am also a person who hates the Denver Broncos. I mean, it just goes with being a Raider fan. You hate the Broncos. They're one of our biggest rivals inside the AFC. And um, I hated them forever. And then Peyton Manning came to the Broncos. And I was like, you know, I kind of like this Peyton guy. You know, I don't know. There's something about him. It's just something right about him or whatever. I don't know. I started rooting for the Broncos because I was rooting for Peyton. And uh, and then yesterday I started reading this article about Mr. Manning and this revelation about this <laughs> stupid fucking sophomoric thing he did, a horrible thing he did to an athlete athletic trainer, director woman of the University of Tennessee, very well respected, a pioneer in her field, one of the first women who was a trainer and a, you know, athletic director in college, men's college sports. And he just basically put his like whole genital area on her head one day when she was examining his foot. And that would have been bad enough. That would have been bad enough, but she kept, you know, she went and complained, and she'd already had a lot of harassment. I mean, the, the bo- her boss called her a cunt bumper because he assumed she was a lesbian, which she was not. Uh, just, you know, but she kept her mouth shut because about that because, you know, she's a woman and she was being a pioneer and she was just trying to focus on her work. But then this Manning thing happened, and it turns out that he lied. He lied through his teeth about the incident and that there was a witness who saw the whole thing and knew that he had lied and told him to come forward. And she ended up, you know, kind of bowing out gracefully and took um, an arrangement, an agreement and some money from the university and moved on with her career and had an illustrious career. Um, but that wasn't good enough for Manning. And he uh, then wrote a book uh, that's that basically this completely lies about her and once again is attacking her and and it made her lose her job and so he, you know it's one thing to do a dipshit thing when you're a fucking college kid and you're full of yourself because your dad was Archie Manning and all that crap uh, but it's quite another thing to be a full-on f- adult with a lot of power and success um, and to, to go after someone um, and ruin their career and try to ruin their life uh, by smearing them. And that's what he's done. And uh, so the whole thing's come out. And, you know, you just never know who people are. <laughs> you just never know. This guy's a total fucking douchebag. Douchebag. And, you know, I heard my dad's fucking voice in my head just saying, what, you fucking trusted a fucking Manning, a fucking Bronco quarterback? Like, you know these people are all douchebags, Kelly. Why would you even give him the benefit of the doubt? Stop that. <sighs> I know, Dad. I know. I give people, way too many people, the benefit of the doubt. That's what I do, Dad. Uh, but he would have been right on this one because, um, meh, yeah, you know. And then, you know, what What do you do with Eli? I mean, you know, Eli's quarterback of a New York team. Dad, what do you do with that? Tell me. What do we do with this? He never talks back. 
So, yeah, so it's fun. Um, good times here in the Americas. Uh, Bernie Sanders is doing great. Hillary's fighting back. There's big Twitter wars, life wars, feminist wars. Women are at each other's throats right now. Um, there's the old the old guard, Gloria Steinem, and people like Hillary and Madeleine Albright who fought the good fight decades ago. And then there's the millennials and the women who were like, didn't need to fight the good fight and have their own way of expressing their needs and see Bernie as a, a candidate for that. And it's, it's so it's just, it's, a, it's really interesting, the culture, the culture wars inside the left and inside feminine feminism right now. I'm a fan of it all. Fan, big fan of Gloria Steinem, big fan of Hillary, big fan of Bernie. Uh, don't know who I'm going to vote for. I live in California. Pretty much doesn't matter. Uh, although I guess it does for the primary because of the delegates. So we'll see. We will see. Uh, fascinating about Trump. Uh, South Carolina is up tomorrow, I guess it is, or Nevada or something. Uh, Nevada and South Carolina are this week. Uh, one's a caucus, one's a primary. I don't know the exact order of all these things, uh, but um, Trump is accumulating delegates. <laughs> And all the rest of them are kind of scrambling for them. And uh, But if you watch the GOP debate like I did, I was proud of Jeb, man. He got up there and he got in Trump's face. <laughs> and Trump just fucking, he's such a dog, though. He's such a bully dog, you know. And Jeb's like, you know, my mother, I respect my mother more than, you know, anyone else on the planet. You know, she's one of the fiercest people or something like that. And, and Trump's like, well, maybe she should be running. <laughs> It's just a schoolyard brawl. It's so fun. Um, so enjoying the antics there. Absolutely. And uh, as far as myself, I'm uh, working on some things, getting some clarity around what's next for me. I'm not going to share it out loud because it's important to keep all this to myself. But uh, having fun with my creative process right now and stepping into some things and being even, you know, another couple of weeks away from the book and all of that. And, you know, it's, it's just, it's, it's a good time. It's a good time to be in my head for me. I mean, you know, I'm not like bragging or anything like that. I'm like, sometimes it's not a good time to be in my head with me. Um, Monday mornings being one of them, because I always wake up in a total panic, like, holy fuck shit. <laughs> That's how I wake up. Isn't that lovely? Holy fuck shit. How many other people out there wake up like that? I'm guessing the majority of us. Because it's always like, oh, fuck, I have to show up and be a fucking grown up today on some level. Somewhere I've got to return an important email or have a conversation or even record this today. I mean, it was this, this in, the, in the moment when I first wake up, it's like, oh, oh, God, I got to do this interview. And I got to because it's like I have this like expectation of perfectionism. And then I have to be perfect at it. And I have to know what I'm doing instead of just showing up and being myself. And then when I remind myself, oh, yeah, I'm just going to show up and be myself. Oh, yeah. Relief. Huge relief. So that initial voice in my head, I'm trying not to listen to it. Um, trying to approach things more like the 10-year-old version of ourselves. Think of back when you were 10 years old and um, whatever your obsession was. Were you uh, playing an instrument? Were you playing a sport? Were you uh, skateboarding? Were you, uh, like me, listening to music and um, dancing and skateboarding at the same time um, and, you know, putting on a show, 
you know, getting gathering all the stuffed animals and giving people roles and writing a script. And, you know, what is the joy? What was that joy at 10 years old before kind of the heaviness of life? Even if you did have, I mean, at 10 years old, I had a lot of heaviness of life on me. My mother wasn't sober yet. My parents were in the fucking thick of insanity. But my joy were these particular moments where I got to you know, choreograph a dance to a Beatles song or something like that. And with my best friend and just you focused your afternoon on that thing, you know, or you were building a fort with cardboard boxes that afternoon and you, you were gathering things and you were getting stuff for the inside of the fort or whatever it is. There was a an obs- kind of a group obsession that would happen with your friends and you'd all focus on this thing. Or maybe you were playing capture the flag in your neighborhood, whatever it was, there was just this complete immersion in it. That joy, that immersive joy where there's no real world around you and it's all about just serving the moment and serving this thing you're doing. Um, You know, maybe it was learning a new song on the piano that you just you love to be at the piano by yourself and learn that song. Whatever it was, it just took you away. That's the joy these days that I'm offering to myself again at 52 soon to be 53, that 10-year-old joy that was beaten out of us by our families and education and our culture and expectations and our bosses and our need to fucking have a 401k plan and have insurance and a mortgage and a car that runs and food on the fucking table, all those fucking obligations. Imagine turning any of those moments, any of those moments in your day where you have to face your job, face paying the bills, whatever it is, the thing that turns your stomach normally and you fear, imagine allowing your 10-year-old's joy to come in and drive the moment and be in charge of the moment. Let them shape the task at hand, whatever it is. Feel that joy in your body. Feel that excitement, feel that getting lost in something, and let yourself fall into this mundane thing that you have to do. But make it your personal joy, because that joy is real to you. That's your joy. No one can take that away from you. And these tasks are these tasks. We have to do them, all of them. But this is your choice, how to do them. So that's what I've been trying to live into the last week or so. And even when I wake up with the panicked voice in my head, you know, oh, fuck, oh, shit. (laughs) Oh, wait a minute. What if the 10-year-old got to be in charge of the podcast today or the interview or um, putting my dishes away from the dishwasher or having to, you know, get my shit and my paperwork together for the accountant on Wednesday because we're doing our taxes? Any of that. It's kind of revelatory. I kind of invite you to live into that. Speaking of joy, I have a guest today. Have not had a guest the last few shows, which has been really lovely and fantastic and not going to be doing a guest all the time. Uh, But this gentleman, Paul Holdengreba, it's very Austrian. He is a man who works... Um, He hosts this 
uh, event at the New York Public Library called Live from the New York Public Library. And it's a conversation series that he does with writers and musicians and filmmakers and artists and thinkers and scholars and sometimes uh, political people. But he's this man is incredibly good at the art of conversation. You can also find him on YouTube. Um, there's a series of conversations he's had around, uh, uh, you know, with artists and all these kind of people too. And the, the YouTube uh, channel that it is is called the Intelligent Channel, of course, because it's uh, Mr. Uh, Mr. Um, Holden Greba. Uh, he's very learned and uh, he's got a PhD in uh, comparative literature. You know, this is a guy who quotes people all the time. He like remembers the quotes to quotes people. I have such envy of people like that. I wish I could carry quotes around in my head like this guy. But um, he and I met uh, about a year after my dad died. He and Tony Hendra, who co-wrote my dad's um, posthumous memoir, um, organized a tribute to my dad at the New York Public Library. If some of you may be familiar with it and have seen the Louis C.K. clip, uh, Louis was um, the person who came and spoke about my dad. We had that evening. We had um, myself, my uncle Pat, Tony Hendra, Whoopi Goldberg hosted. We had all of the Stiller family: uh, Ben, Amy, and Mira, and uh, Dad. What's Dad's name? Jerry. Jerry. Thank you, Jerry Stiller. God bless his heart. Uh, we had um, Lewis Lapham, who used to be the editor-in-chief of Harper's Magazine and now is the editor of something called the Lapham Quarterly. Talk about erudite thinkers. Um, and he did a piece on the cultural impact of my dad, uh, just culturally. And then we had a big First Amendment lawyer, and I can't remember his name right now. But if you go to the New York Public Library, into their archives, they have all the snippets of it. Um, they also have Louis C.K. Louis' piece is beautiful, but the whole evening is beautiful. I highly recommend. Um, I did a piece. I did a story that ends up in my book and ends up in my show, but this is 2009. It's a story. Um, my uncle uh, did a little bit. And then Tony Hendra and I uh, did some piece from uh, Brain Droppings uh, just on language and my dad. It was just it was just a beautiful evening. And I was so impressed what Paul has created in that space. And um, he and I have recently reconnected uh, via Twitter, of course. And I said to him, would you please come on my show and discuss with me a bit about the art of conversation? Uh, because uh, he he's a master at it. And as you know, I do a lot of interviews here and other places, and uh, I hold my own in that space, but I'm always so excited to really see how other people hold that space and create it. Uh, so uh, here is my almost hour-long conversation with Paul, and uh, we really do focus on the art of conversation, and uh, I hope you enjoy. The good starting point of a conversation is being able to hear it, each other. It is. It is. <laughs> I, I, I do. I do agree. The spoken word should be heard. <laughs> so often you go and hear people talk, and you can't hear them. I mean, in many ways you can't hear them, but sometimes you don't actually hear what they're saying. Sometimes you just can't bear what they're saying. <laughs> yes, you don't want to be hearing them. Is that's a whole exactly. <laughs> 
That's very true. Well, I like that we've just we've jumped right in here. This is good already. We're 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 in it. We're here in the middle of it. Of, of, of course, not. Well, of course, why not? I mean, one should begin right in the middle. You know, this is true because we're always in the middle. Right. There's there really is no beginning. Beginnings and endings are uh, arbitrary at best. Yeah. So. Paul, I'm thrilled you're here with me today uh, for one reason uh, is because I love what you do. I just I'm a huge fan and love watching how you create and host a space for uh, people, heart, story, ideas, um, humanity. And, uh, and, and, and so I just, I just wanted to have a conversation with you about, about all of this and what got you, what brought you to this place in your life where you get to host these amazing conversations or, or bring certain types of people to the public eye and, uh, wanted to know, I, I mean, I know you were out here in Los Angeles and you worked at LACMA for a while and you did... A similar kind of thing. I'm pretty sure I went to some of the events that you that you produced for LACMA because I remember going to some very incredible, unique uh, events that kind of invited cross pollination of people and conversation around the arts. Uh, what what brought you to wanting to host this kind of space? Well, you know, um, it, it's so interesting. Well, first of all, thank you so much. I mean. Um, one, 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 one must be um, uh, cautious with so much uh, kindness and uh, such grandiloquent terms as the ones you use. But one, one that I, I, only because I think it might go to one's head, and maybe <laughs> I, I am in a slight state of inebriation now after hearing what you, what you said about, so kindly about my work. But what, what I will say is that struck me uh, most profoundly in what you say is the notion of creating a space. Because if there is something, it is to have created a space where attention and trust and belief in the public, which indeed we should believe in, is possible. Something that I, I'm very happy um, does exist in that space, which is a... Mm. Um, and by sacred, I mean, I mean, since... I, I suffer from a terrible disease called quotomania. I can't stop <laughs> quoting people. In fact, when Simon Weil said that attention is a form of prayer, mm. I think um, I, I, I subscribe to that. I subscribe to the notion that there is such a thing as sustained argumentation, sustained listening, um, uh, an attention to detail, and an attention also to... Uh, um, thoughts. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. yes, I, I, I'm, I'm delighted that I'm able to do this. And how I got there, I nearly feel like, like, like again, putting Hegel and saying that the owl of Minerva would, will take its flight at dusk. I'm not exactly sure how it all came about, but I think it, it must come from a very early memory, or at least I feel it could come from an early memory of of 
feeling just how exciting it is to to talk mm. and how exciting it is to listen. How exciting it is to discover when somebody's saying something, something that resonates in you, much the way we will about that with novels or with books they've read or with music they've heard. And the whole of it is exciting to me. I mean, it really, it excites me to be asked a question by you and to think, well, how do I answer it? And, and what will come to me when, we, when I speak to you? What, what will I say that, that may even be novel? Yeah, the, the, this, this uh, thing you're conjuring up in me just as, as I'm listening is, you know, it's this incredible, uh, I don't even know how to, what the word is, but there's this sense of I get a somatic experience as you're talking, which because there's connections being made inside of me, connections that have to do with, my experience, my background, ideas, emotion, and then that that moment where that somatic experience translates into words and ideas so that then I can share them with you in this shared space. Uh, this is a this is a uh, a process that I've become very fascinated with lately, this this connection between, um, soul and uh, logos, you know, eros and logos, I guess you could call it. And yeah, uh, yeah, for sure. And that something special happens when you or any of us host this space for humans to enter into, uh, because there is something about, you know, what that elusive word soul, but there's something soulful about conversation and authentic deep encounter well you know i i'm often asked what it is i do and 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 do i moderate conversations or something of that nature and i keep telling people certainly not because i'm i'm not particularly moderate and so <laughs> if, if 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 anything i instigate them and i don't even know that i really interview as much as it's a conversation and an exchange um, it, uh, unless one takes the word interview in and divides it in, in two, interview, then maybe there's something mm. there that, that pleases me greatly. But I, I've come to simply define my, my, my role um, with a word I don't particularly like, which is the word curator, but I say that I'm the curator of public curiosity. Mm. So what, 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 what that means is when I'm on stage with whoever it is, whether it's with Patti Smith or Zadie Smith, Ricky Jay or Jay-Z, uh, uh, Errol Morris or Jan Morris, or you name it, Pete Townsend or um, Harry Belafonte, um, whoever it may be, I am a conduit. And I'm a conduit very often with people whose worlds I know very little about. And therefore, my curiosity in speaking to someone like Mike Tyson is infinite. Mm. And I, I learned by speaking to him that there is one of the most articulate people I've, I've ever met, um, both extremely vulnerable and extremely violent and extremely everything, but, but, but so, so powerful when, when coming into his own words, mm. as indeed 
you know, in in a sense, the enactment on stage is is not unlike the enactment we have when we start to begin to talk, and we discover that there's something of a miracle, which uh, which is a little bit resonating with what you were saying. Uh, about um, uh, about the appeal of, of conversation. We don't know exactly what will happen next. There's another uh, great line, I, I believe, by an English psychoanalyst who I adore named Adam Phillips, who has fantastic books with extraordinary titles like On Kissing, Tickling, and Being Bored, <laughs> On Monogamy, um, Unforbidden Pleasures is his most recent book. And he says that when we speak to each other, things fall out of our pockets. Mm. Um, and I don't know what your pockets look like, Kelly, but mine are, are terribly messy. And so <laughs> a lot of different things fall out of my pockets. Some I want to show to others, others I don't. And then if pressed correctly, um, something may happen. <laughs> and often and often something may not happen. So my 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 work is very prone um to sublime failure in so far that it's sublime at all. Hmm. Uh, it, sometimes it you know it, there has to be chemistry, there has to it has to click, there has to be give and take. Um there has to be a a a desire um I, I suppose the most important thing is a, a certain form of generosity. Mm. And then there has to be something that maybe maybe the listeners today think I don't know how to do, but I promise I'm, I'm better when not questioned myself. There has to be uh, listening. I mean, my mother, when I was 11 years old, said to me, you know, Paul, we have two ears and one mouth. <laughs> and I think she said it to me for a reason because I wasn't listening. Yes. And so I often I often say that's the origin of that's my origin story is is that. Of course it's like many origin stories it's completely fabricated. <laughs> well said. I I speak often here on my podcast about my origin story which uh I just I wrote a book about but it's it is a construct yeah. it is a constructed narrative ultimately and uh it, and and this listening and curiosity, what what do you listen for? Um, pauses, uh, very much. I I I try to um, to to hear what happens when nothing is being said. Um, I am I'm trying to to elicit in my subject something that may be a news, particularly if I'm I'm speaking with somebody whose work I've just read, I'm trying to elicit in them something that they may not have said, mm. but that I'm, I, I get a hint that they, they might have more to say than was on the written page. I'm, I'm listening for a good story. I mean, the important thing is to invite people and to speak to people whose lives you find intriguing and interesting. Absolutely. So I'm, I'm listening carefully. I'm listening carefully to to what what is being said, and of course, uh, in a way, what I was trying to say is I'm I'm listening for what isn't said. Mm -hmm. And by doing so, I hope 
I, and it doesn't always work. I hope that the audience um, is asking themselves also, you know, what is being said, or if you want to put it in terms of reading, they are listening between the lines, as it were. Yes. Uh, listening between between the utterances, as we do when we when we read. We, if we're good readers, we 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 read not only what's on the page, but what's in between the words. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. A- and although you are the the host of this space and the listener, is there something? within yourself that you hope to reveal through conversation you know i i, I when i said that i'm not i'm not a moderator i meant it quite literally I, I i don't i don't you know do a back and forth if i have two people on stage do a back and forth and just try to to be measured and exact and mm. and um but rather what i the, the way I like to express myself in this regard is that I, I bring my own body. I bring my own self. I bring the whole of me. I, I bring the experiences um, that matter to me. I bring my obsessions. I often say to my guests that I want to create with them an organized web of obsessions. <laughs> so I want to... I want, I want to, in some way, create a sense where uh, their questions and my my questions meet in some way, but not to not 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 that. Uh, I mean, they are the subject mm-hmm. uh, of the inquiry, and I am the the nearly the not not quite the object, but I am the I'm the person there to to unpack what they have to say to use again the image of what is in our pockets. Um, uh, But yes, I I, I do. I don't know if I'm trying to reveal something, but I would rather say that something may be revealed in the process. I know that people who have come regularly for the last decade have a sense of what interests me. Mm -hmm. Maybe, Maybe sometimes they wish that I had new things that would interest me because they're so they're so used to the hobby horses. You know, I'm, I I seem always to be interested in the in in ideas pertaining to aging and the relationship between taste and age, the relationship between what we have loved and what we continue to revere. Um, Your obsessions. So, yes, they, these are obsessions that come back again and again and again. And they are passions. They are passions and obsessions. Uh, and, and you and, know, you know it, it, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, uh, no, you go ahead. No, no, no. Please, please. I, uh, I, I speak too much. Uh, no, no, you don't. I was thinking that you know, ultimately, it is our obsessions as humans. These, um, these, you know. Uh, I'm a person who studied Jungian depth psychology for so so for me it's like um it's a uh, a, a falling into um some sort of archetypal relationship with something like we are possessed by these things and ultimately it is our obsessions that make us who we are and you know I think so much of what when I you know I I talk to people who are looking for their 
authentic voice, you know, or the freedom to be themselves. And I, and I really think that this has to do with giving ourselves permission to be obsessed with what we're obsessed with, because that's the little bit of this life experience that we're here to illuminate in some way, and that we all have our own personal obsessions. You know, you see an artist, a painter, who's obsessed with a theme or a a form of some kind, you know, or or a writer who's writing the same story over and over again. Um, and there's something thrilling about seeing someone who has the freedom to be obsessed. Um, you know, it, uh, many things come to mind. One of them is the, the, the notion that um, tell me how you classify and I will tell you who you are. <laughs> um, in, in, in some ways, you know, we, we and we, we do, I mean, I suppose uh, another word for obsession is the word style. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there is, you recognize in the work of someone you, you cherish their style. And sometimes you take to it and sometimes you don't take to it. What, what is interesting in talking to people is that, yes, of course, one has a style, but it's also a highly, um, hopefully, when successful, a highly adaptive style. So, you know, when, um, uh, when in, in one week you can speak um, with um, uh, Patty, Patty Smith and, and the next the next time that you, you speak with someone, you're speaking with Zadie Smith, and then you're speaking with uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, and then you're <laughs> speaking with... I mean, you know, in, in each case, the, the, the worlds are so different yes. uh, that one has to, in, in some way, really be attentive to the singularity of the person in front of you. And, and I think the most important thing that I can feel is um, to, take, to take their work and the person they bring to the stage seriously. Mm, yes, yes. Uh, do you feel that the work you do has a purpose in the culture, that this kind of work helps the culture in some way become healthier or... I, I don't even know how to ask the question, but... Well, I, I, I think I know what you might be wishing to say is, is you know, um, is what I, I do, does what I do have any usefulness at all? Um, and uh, one can only hope, um, but, but I, I would say yes and no. Um, uh, it's it's both entertaining for for many people, and sometimes it may there may be a, a shard of of a bit of a fragment of a sentence that resonates a decade later in someone. <laughs> I, it's sort of I, I mean I don't really know. I'm I the eye cannot see itself. I, I'm not sure how useful what what it is that I do is for other people but i do i do recall from the years when i was i was teaching a long 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 time ago i had a student who wrote to me maybe a decade after the class was over and said to me dear professor holdengraber i just finished the reading for your class and uh, it was magnificent you know as, as 
though the the resonance and the the echo of what had been taught in the signs continued many 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 years after the cast was over and i think we we know this in some way know that what we've heard can have such an incredible power over us mm. we know it when we go to a to a concert i remember my my dear mother um, when i when i interviewed van Cliburn, the great pianist who won the tchaikovsky piano competition right in the middle of the cold war and the kuchev and and he came to the library and this was he was maybe 77 a year maybe before he died and I remember telling him, I used to go back to, to Brussels to, to see my mother, and she would say um, to me, so tell me, who, who are you interviewing next? And and uh, often it would be a writer that she had very much read, and she would say, well, tell, tell so-and-so that he or she has a fan in Brussels. <laughs> um, and then when I mentioned Van Cliburn, she said, you know, I remember in 1961, we went to a concert where he played Brahms' Piano Concerto Number no. 2. And my father then added, well, and afterwards we went to the Knoblauch, to some family, and there he was. And I remember when Van Cliburn came to the library, I told him this story in the green room. And he said, you're absolutely right. Mm. And I said, isn't it amazing? You performed for two hours. In, in, a, in an evening in 1960 or 61. And I think he said it was 61, so he remembered. And somebody, in this case, namely my mother, more than half a century later, remembers those two hours. Mm. So I think, you know, there's a heightened level at which, and that's where the level of attention is so important if one can create it, um, where something just stays with you. And, you know, Kelly, uh, I, I, what am I talking about, talking about this with you? Uh, <laughs> you have both written a book uh, where, where you try to express some of these things, and you have a father who, who's, um, whose work, you know, people remember decades after they yes. saw him for one time. Yeah. I mean, you know, it, it's, it was, I mean, I remember when Louis C.K. Um, at the library just spoke and Kevin Smith and you yourself and everybody there spoke so powerfully of the, the impact of a moment. Mm. Yes, yes, absolutely, absolutely. I'm really curious about the space itself that you get to work in, the New York Public Library. And I do, thinking about that evening where we had a tribute from my father and had some amazing people come and speak. That space itself, though, that that beautiful room we were in, that building, um, just there's, speak to me a little bit about your relationship with that that physical space and, and how it hosts you and uh, these people you get to, to speak with. Well, you know the the, the Celeste Bartos Forum, where where we we hosted the evening with with uh, yourself uh, so memorably, and Kevin uh, Smith and Louis C.K. and Whoopi Goldberg and Ben Stiller and his parents uh, speaking about about your father George Carlin was perhaps 
one of the most glorious evenings I've, I've had at the library and perhaps the only tribute in my view that worked. Mm. Um, tributes, tributes are something that I think are, are very difficult to do. Um, uh, they can often be memorials. In, in the case of, of what we hosted for your father, I think a year after he passed, was, was just, um, just what it should be, a, a celebration of, of, the mind's ex, of the man's exquisite mind and his ability to use language like uh, nearly nobody else in, 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 uh, in stand-up comedy, if that's what one wants to call it. Probably <laughs> much more profound than that. Yeah. Um, but but uh, it, it, you know the the New York Public Library to my mind is kind of the Ellis Island of New York. It's uh, the point of entry. It's it's where, um, of course, fifty and seventy and ninety years ago, um, so many emigrates to this country found in the grand reading room of the Forty Second Street Mothership Library between the lions, which have names patience and fortitude. You'll always remember that fortitude is closer to 40 seconds. <laughs> but, you know, that library is, is, is so much more than a repository for books. It's an active, active place where ideas, if you think of the shelves as books uh, uh, in communication with each other and with the public, um, it seems to me that to, to host the kind of of events that I do at the library makes so much sense because it it makes uh, it takes away the idea that a library is anything other than an active incubator of ideas that ideas are not inert but that they are active and alive and that's why it's called also live from the New York Public Library though I, I happen to say that I I also did a, an evening which I, I, I loved there on obituaries. Mm. I'm particularly interested in obituaries. So it was an evening called Live from the New York Public Library Presents Dead from the New York Public <laughs> Library. And, 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 and we invited perhaps uh, the, the, the greatest obituary writer in England for the, for the economist Anne Rowe to speak with other obituary writers uh, from the U.S., including some for the New York Times. So the undertakers of the New York Times were pitted against um, Anne Rowe from The Economist, and it was interesting to see how they do the dead differently. Mm. But in a way, um, an obituary is all about the life, mm. and a library is all about vivid ideas, mm. and how do you animate them? And so that space to to, to me where, where we pay tribute um, as best we could um, to, to your, your father is a, 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 I often say it's a bit grandiloquent, but I'll, I'll, I'll repeat it nevertheless, that it's a, a moment in the dialectic. So you, you, you're, you're, you're on the ground floor at, in the Celeste Bartos Forum, and above you on the third floor is a grand reading room. And so in a, in a way, what, um, what I'm hoping to create is a desire for the public to go to the reading room after having heard whatever words they might hear in the Celeste Bartos Forum, so that the very solitary act, if, if it's an act of reading, becomes a public manifestation in an, in an event. And then m maybe you go back into the solitary um, uh, 
relationship you have with with books mm. to be able again to express it to others because we know when we love something we we often feel compelled sometimes at our risk <laughs> and sometimes at our peril to share our pleasure uh, absolutely uh, our Exactly. We want our obsession to become other people's obsessions. <laughs> That's right. That's right. That's right. Uh, and sometimes we're successful and sometimes it's, sometimes our obsessions are worthy of being displayed and disseminated. Yes. And sometimes sometimes not. But but it, I, I didn't express that perfectly well. It's, you know, there is this notion that when you're reading, you're alone. Mm-hmm. And when you come to an event of the nature that I, I try to, to, to create, you are in the company of so many other people. And I think that company of so many other people heightens your relationship to whatever it is you've come to enjoy or hopefully enjoy that evening. And if you think of it also, our world today in so many ways is a world where we spend an awful lot of time staring at screens, being alone, and and in a way, um, these public displays uh, of the nature, of the kind I do, are a way of creating a space not only of attention, as I said earlier, but of conviviality. Mm, yes. Where you, you share the experience with others, as you do indeed when you go to a concert, as indeed you do when, you, when, when there's a public manifestation where other people together with you are sharing an experience. We we know this even from going to the movies. They're they as 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 wonderful and as um, as easy and accessible as um, watching a movie at home is. There is a difference of maybe of magnitude, or or perhaps the work is better translated in some way when you see it on a big screen with others. Yeah, I I, I think there is a a difference in attention when we're part of a collective experience of receiving uh, anything like that. There's there's something else working in our psyches and our brains that are alive when we're around other people. And it's got to affect how we receive and take in uh, whatever it is we're, we're taking in. It's just, it's a different filter. And it, it is, it's a collective experience, which we are social beings, ultimately. So... There's a richness to that that you cannot get, like you said, uh, with just a personal, um, alone relationship with the work. Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, I, 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 I sometimes say that you, you know, I mean, of course you can, but you can't really, um, you can't really tickle yourself. <laughs> right. Yes. Yes. I mean, you can and you can't. I think everybody understands. But what I'm, I'm saying is, you know, we, we need the, the company of others for certain things to happen. Yes, yes. And, and I think that, that takes us full around to this idea of, you know, I was watching some of your interviews um, uh, this morning. I was watching a talk you had with Elizabeth Gilbert on your um, show and um, with Werner and just there's something that happens, you know, just like, well, you and I having this conversation that, like you said, the things that kind of fall out of our pockets that we don't even know are going to fall out. But there's there's things that are revealed 
in conversation that are just not going to be revealed even if I sat down and decided to think about these things by myself or you sat down to think about these things and wrote them in a journal or an essay or something that there is something about the the social aspect of being a human that helps us reveal more of ourselves to each other and uh, there's a there's something else at stake when, when we do this. Well you know it, it, it's it's I, I mean, I, I know I'm privileging something that that I do and that I, I love. I was recently asked um, about six months ago to go back to my alma mater, to my to 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 the place where I went to graduate school, namely Princeton. And a hundred years ago, I was a graduate student in Princeton, and and um, haven't really been back since I, I I left. And then I was a pretend scholar in, in various universities, and and then I landed working, uh, being a jolly good fellow at the Getty, and then at LACMA, <laughs> as you said, um, and then you know continued a little bit of that, and then came to the New York Public Library. But Princeton recently invited me to come and speak to the Department of Comparative Literature, where I got a degree, um, and, you know, I got a PhD, which so much didn't impress my father, because he said I already had PH in my name, and I only got one letter, a letter D for five years, I mean, really. Um, uh, he, he, you know, he thought it, it was, a, I mean, at least I should have gotten a better letter than a letter D. But anyway, um, there there comes Princeton, the department, asking me to give a talk, basically to I suppose to talk in some ways to uh, students and uh, and parents and faculty about what happens to the poor students who, once they graduate, might not have jobs <laughs> in the universities, and what do they do? And in my case, you know, I'm doing something that that is I don't know if it's a value, but it's something that is um, has a profile in some way mm -hmm. that they can they can. They can put their fingers on, and uh, so they asked me if I give, will give a talk, and I said no, 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 no. Don't put me in the academic mode of giving a talk. I don't do talks. And I said, and, and they said, so what? What would you like to do? And I said, well, a conversation. Mm. And I said, well, if you really want to know what I do, then like Kelly Carlin, who called me up today, ask me questions, and and I'll I'll show you what I do, or if you'd like, I can interview someone for you. But they preferred the idea of the interviewer be interviewed, as it were, as we're doing here. And I said, you know, what I really would love is to be interviewed by my dissertation advisor, who is now in his mid-90s, uh, retired from Princeton, um, a professor emeritus, one of the greatest scholars of 19th century uh, France, uh, literature of France, and Stendhal, and Flaubert, and Hugo, mm. and Balzac, and Zola, and all of those people, Victor Brombert. And this week, at the end of this week, off I go to Princeton to be interviewed by this former doctor father of mine. Mm. And uh, what what is interesting about that to me is I don't know what, 30 years after leaving the institution what what he's going to ask me. I know he's a little bit worried, <laughs> which is so fantastic. <laughs> How can I interview you? I said, well, I, I, I said, Victor, I think you can manage. I really do. 
I trust you. But it, but it's a sweet moment, and, yeah. and I'm very much looking forward to it. And after actually after we speak now, I'll I'll write to him and just re, both reassure him and reassure myself that we'll be fine. Ah, uh, yes, absolutely. I uh, I would love to be in that room to witness this conversation because I have no doubt it'll be so many multi-layered leveled uh it'll be beautiful i i hope it's a i hope like the the the, the best conversation i know uh, uh when there's uh, there's a slight dance mm. and sometimes you know the, it's more than just a slight dance in the in the case of of interviewing rupaul not so long ago <laughs> yeah it actually turned it turned out that Literal we, dance. He started to dance. <laughs> yes. I started to dance. I mean, you know, I I couldn't contain myself. Yes. So I danced with RuPaul, one mm. of my, you know, one of my claims to fame. I'll, maybe on my tombstone, he danced with RuPaul. <laughs> <laughs> Beautiful. I love that. <laughs> well, we have a few more minutes here. I just wanted to... Uh, just talk to you briefly about the world at large. Uh, we, we spoke briefly about it when we talked about the screens that we're all kind of staring into these days, but uh, certainly what's uh, hot on uh, the minds of many Americans uh, is politics. And, and you know, you spoke of the library and this place of, you know, ideas that are alive. And, and yet so much of politics is ideology and uh, wanting to um, kind of uh, not keep ideas alive, but <laughs> in some ways, you know, uh, bring bring things that have already have already been decided. You know, ideologies and dogma and things like that. And and just wanted, you know, you don't you don't delve into politics much in what you do, you know. And I'm just curious how you approach looking out at the American political landscape and, and how do you hold it and how do you digest it? Well, you know, it, it is true that, that um, I mean, you are, you are correct to, to, to say that I don't address politics um, directly and, and in many ways the same way I, I, I don't have a, a huge amount of, of what one might call uh, scholars of, of the uh, university type that come, because in, in many ways I think that there's so many places in New York City and elsewhere that, that are, you know, whether it's um, foreign relations or the Carnegie or so many places that, that delve into politics. But we do, we do, you know, on occasion, and maybe even more than on occasion, I mean, this this upcoming season, we have Yanis Varoufakis coming, uh, j just to take one idea, or Svetlana Alexievich, the Nobel Prize this year um, of, of literature, but really of nonfiction. Mm. So, and I had John Hope Franklin with President Clinton, and we, we, we've had a number of, of extraordinary figures come to the library who are uh, politically minded. Um, I... It, it isn't an, a natural bent of mine to to um, to invite uh, whether it is politicians or. Uh, but what, what I'm trying what I'm trying to do is to invite people who will make people think mm. about their political choices in the best possible way. So you know, for instance, since it's on everybody's mind now, 
it it was very interesting to me to um, invite Stephen Breyer not so long ago to talk about his passion for um, actually French literature wow. and how how his mother early on told him you know uh, Stephen you need to you need to read a lot of uh, literature because you need. Uh, in the position you find yourself in, you need to be able to put yourself in somebody else's shoes, wow. however uncomfortable they may be. Um, and so in, in that way, you know, that was a lesson, a lesson in politics that yes. happened there, but through another, another way of looking at, at it than, you know, a direct political um, Debate, but you know, we this year we also have Seymour Cy Hirsch coming, mm. um, who wrote a book on the assassination of Bin Laden. So they are interspersed among among the the, the various people that I invite. They are events that are, are, are one, one might say political, but I, I would say that anything I'm doing in some way could have a political overtone. Sure, sure, or, under, or undertone. Maybe. Yes, yes, but but I love that it, there's this angle in which you you approach it, which really widens up the perspective and the and the conversation. Uh, you know, because you know, as humans, there's so much how we perceive the world is is influenced by so much, and and just that thing you just said about Stephen Breyer and French literature, and you know, being able to step into someone else's shoes. I mean. Uh, that's so beautiful. It's such a beautiful space to hold that and, and says so much about being a human approaching these things um, that, you know, we're not, you know, I mean, maybe humanity, we are inherently political in the sense that it's always about power in some ways, but, but that shows a lot about, you know, what is, you know, what is it when you stand in another man's shoes? What does that say about power and how we influence each other and, and, and use it in our culture? So um, I, I just, I, I love and adore that. And uh, but, but, but also, you know, what, what strikes me is, is um, that people are so much more than we take them. To yes. Be, um, so that, so that, one wouldn't assume that Stephen Breyer <laughs> would be reading every year, um, you know, La Peste or some Camus or some Hugo. One wouldn't, one wouldn't assume that when when um, when Mike Tyson comes on stage, um, one of the first comments he made to me because I took him into the rear book room, he said, I, I said to him. Uh, uh, you know, I have really seen someone so immersed in 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 the special collections. And he said, you know, a a a room without books is like a body without a soul. Mm, mm-hmm. It was incredible. Yeah. I mean, it, what was incredible also was that, unbeknownst to me, he was quoting a a, a, a line from Cicero. Now, who who would assume <laughs> that you know Mike Tyson is quoting Cicero? But we don't assume it because we assume that, you know, formal education and curiosity naturally go together. Yes. When in fact, you know, the man stopped school when he was seven years old. Mm-hmm. And when shown by one of the head um, librarians and archivists of the library, a manuscript of uh, um, Machiavelli's The Prince, uh, as one of the first, if not the first um, edition of Machiavelli's The Prince, 
Tyson said to the to the curator, you know, I think there's an earlier edition, and he was absolutely right. <laughs> wow. And 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 what what I love about that is that we are so much more than what we are made out to be. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. Uh, this... And that excites me, Kelly. That we... excites me. It's a, it's a notion that that we, you know, to, that. Uh, as, as Lawrence Stern says, to define is to distrust. Mm, hmm Yes, absolutely. And it's one of my personal, I would say the word, use the word obsession again for myself, is always about finding and revealing the parts of ourselves that people would not expect, because I think that's where there's a moment of surprise and humanity can enter uh, into um, our perspectives about people. You know, there's, you know, we put people in boxes and then it just becomes this dead, like you just said, this dead definition of them. And um, there's an aliveness to all of us. We are so many different parts. And um, I, I, I cherish and relish all the parts of everyone and, and want everyone to feel free to express all of them all of the time. Yeah, I agree. Well, Paul, this has been a very rich and deep conversation for me. I I feel like um, I I have so many values that are reflected in the work you do. And I I try to, when I come to conversation with people, bring so much of what you bring. And it's always a joy to watch you work, um, although it's from afar and on video because I live in Los Angeles. But I was so excited. We reconnected via social media. Once again, love social media for this and could have you come here and just talk about this kind of unique position you have and, and this unique gift you get to give us. Well, thank you. And it's re- a real, real pleasure to speak to you. And I, I, nothing beats a face-to-face encounter. So I hope I hope that will happen soon enough. Yes. Or rather, it won't be soon enough, but I hope it happens soon. <laughs> yes, I do too. Next time I'm in New York, I will absolutely Please. make sure that happens. And Please, uh, call on me. I call will, on me I will. Sure. We will. We will have a, a drink or a, a meal or something or a tour around the absolutely. rare book room. <laughs> I, 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 I would love that. And, you know, I do, I'm, I must say I do... I do love the the phone because it has kind of an nearly at this point in time since you were mentioning social media it does nearly have an antiquated <laughs> ring to it um, <laughs> we you know we 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 don't we don't call each other very much and now I have a um, a, a series not unlike I think what you're doing which is called a phone call from Paul mm. on the on the literary hub where I simply call up people, and it's it's a wonderful thing because the phone creates, uh, much like the space we were talking about earlier, it creates a, a space of intimacy, and yet, of course, also one of the distance. Yes, yeah, yeah, the, it is true. Last year, I made an effort to uh, no longer like my friends' posts on Facebook, but actually pick up the phone and have a conversation with them, and I am all the richer for it. (laughs) So, (laughs) yes. They must have been shocked. (laughs) My goodness. Who is this and what is this? What is happening? I I thought you were just a friend. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) All right, Paul. Well, you have a beautiful week and thank you again for this. And uh, we will see you uh, in person and, and in the internets. Oh, 
Excellent. Thank you, Kelly. Thank you for calling me and and take good care of yourself. You too, darling. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Well, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Paul and I. I know I did. To have a conversation with a guy who does conversation and to keep up with him, it's pretty fucking cool. Uh, <laughs> so uh, anyway, I just want to plug some things that I'm doing here in the future. Um, I'm going to be in Boston at the end of this month. I'm going to be at, well, technically it's the beginning of the next month, but um, I'll be flying there the end of this month. On March 1st, I'm doing a speech, uh, a little 25-minute speech on uh, no filter is the theme at the Ad Club's Women's Leadership Forum in Boston. Uh, if your company, corporate corporate company, can pay for you, it's an expensive day, but it's going to be six hours of some really powerful women talking about the importance of having no filter in our lives. I'm very excited to be uh, doing this work and getting in- and got invited to this. I'm really, really honored. And then mid-March, actually on March 19th, Saturday, I'm going to be at the Virginia Festival of Books in Charlottesville. I'll be there at 10 a.m. on the main stage. Uh, The Thomas Jefferson Center is hosting me and um, Josh Wheeler, who's the director, executive director there, will be actually in conversation with me. And then I go straight into rehearsal because I'm going to be doing my solo show, A Carlin Home Companion, again for you folks, but it'll just be the for the folks near West Beach Palm, West Palm Beach, Florida. So Southern Florida, come on out. Tell your friends. I'm going to do four shows over three days. Uh, I will need a... Uh, a a recovery room on Sunday for that but it's technically I'll be doing it um, March 31st through April 2nd I will be signing books after each show most likely and um, and so come down and see me Florida you know there's a lot of little lovely little cities around there I don't know if I'm ever going to do South Florida again And really, at this point, I'm not booked anywhere else. There's a lot of rumblings. There's a lot of rumors around that things might get booked, but I haven't seen it yet. This could be the last chance to even see this show. Uh, So that's going to be happening. And then I'm going to be in April, just going going right through my schedule here, because I'm excited I have a schedule, people. All right. And this way you can put it in your calendar if you're going to be around. Are you in the central coast of California area? Are you near San Luis Obispo? Come see me. I'm going to be at the Jewish Community Center. Yes, I know I'm Irish. It's confusing. We will find a way to make this happen on April 19th. And I'll probably be at the Barnes & Noble on April 20th in San Luis Obispo to sign some books and meet and greet people. So that is my schedule right now. Um... Please follow me on Twitter, Kelly underscore Carlin, if you already don't. Um, Follow Logan on Twitter at Logan Heftel. That is H-E-F-T-E-L. Go find Logan and his work. He's got a new album out. It is gorgeous. Please listen. If you're a fan, you'll be thrilled with this new work. Um, Logan is is an evolution right before my eyes. It's an awesome thing to watch. Um, you can, of course, go to my website, kellycarlin.com. And I'm going to put a little shout out. We have some new things over at the George Carlin shop. We're going to have even more new things. We have T-shirts. We have some actual tote bags now um, for your stuff. Yes, people, I said the stuff word. Go check it out. We're very excited. We're going to have some new products coming, some water bottles, some things like that. 
uh, yes, we are going to completely exploit my father as much as we can, <laughs> but within limits, of course, because that was dad. Dad knew how to exploit himself within limits. All right, everyone, enjoy your week. Um, we'll be coming back. Our next show will be an octagon table, and we'll be uh, taping that later this week, and that'll be out probably a week later. So anyway, uh, blessings to you all, and I mean that in the most godless sense. Later, skater daters. I keep my dirt on the surface so you don't gotta dig. The people that make me nervous try to hide all their sin. And I've got no reason to cover my.